I heard a friend of mine the other day tell me before I get started that uh, he felt that now he was part of what they call the old timers. He had a little gray in his temple to give the look of wisdom and hemorrhoids that gave him that look of concern. (laughs) I've got the gray in the temples and these darting brown eyes are kind of like a dog got caught out here on 287, is it? in the middle of the night but that'll go away after a while I uh, found this program of Al-Anon open AA meetings in Dallas, Texas in October of 1971 and since that time I haven't found it necessary to either go to church or any other public place and look for a prospective mother for my children because I wanted to put a pillow over my wife's face and kind of end it all. And I haven't thought of divorce for quite many years. Uh, We had an agreement early on in marriage that whoever filed for the divorce got the children. (laughs) And by the time we got to this program, and way prior before we got here, we had four kids, and neither one of us had the courage to take them with us. The kids have been gone for several years, but we're putting up with each other. We're, we're, we're still growing up together. Pat and I got married when we were 12 or 13 years old, I think. And if you say it real fast, we've been married about 37 years, and it's kind of scary. But I'll start at the beginning and try to stay in some semblance of chronological order because I'm, I'm, my brain is still not functioning totally. I I skip around a lot, and I think we all have license to do that. First, I'd like to thank the committee for having the courage to ask two Al-Anons to speak to your conference, and both of us from Texas. I don't know where John is here or not. And uh, John's back there. And in order not to break with tradition, the two Johns didn't wear a tie, so I didn't either, and I wanted to thank him for doing that. (laughs) And I'd like to thank Chris and... Beth, who have uh, been such gracious hosts to us this weekend, and a long-standing relationship I've got going on with Ray Leach sitting over here in the corner that started a few months ago by telephone. I, like John, was raised in one of those homes where we didn't talk about what was going on, we didn't talk about those things that we felt. I was not to either discover or acknowledge the fact that my father was a periodic drunk until I was about 35 years of age. I'll touch on that to tell you that now because it kind of explains where some of the feelings come from. I uh, was raised in this nice family with six other children, and uh, by the time I came around, four of them were pretty well gone from home, so there was three of us. There was two very distinct families. And uh, I didn't realize what was going on in my family. The other three kind of left, and they were all in the Army. And my sister couldn't hardly wait to get out of the house. It was seven years older than I. She was soon to escape to college. And uh, I was left in that home as the oldest child for several years. Um, And I had a sister younger than myself. And as I say, at about age... 33 or 34, I knew something was wrong, and probably by age 35, I, uh, I knew that what the problem was in my home and, and what some of the dysfunction was that I had experienced. 
Uh, I had met my wife early on in high school, and uh, she was a cheerleader and a homecoming queen. I was captain of the football team, and it was just it, somebody wrote a script a long time ago and said that the, the marriage should have taken place, and uh, and we did. We we uh, did what it said in the script, and we got married at an extremely early age. Went off to college. Uh, because that's what my parents wanted me to do, and I went into the School of Engineering, which is what my father wanted me to do. And I'd always kind of wanted to do what my parents wanted me to do, you know. Sometimes I was doing things they weren't approving of, but they weren't there, so I got away with it. Uh, during the time that I went to college, I tried all the things that, that people going to college try. I tried smoking a pipe because I thought that was what they were supposed to do, and... Uh, that didn't work because I didn't particularly care for it, and I tried smoking a cigarette at age five, and then I tried it again about, oh, I think I tried it once when I was about 19. That didn't work either, so I threw that away, but I could drink with my friends, and I started drinking in bars uh, at that age because I, I worked with a jazz quintet. I worked with a, a band. We were in the time when I was in college, and it took nine years, so, you know, I, I did a lot of drumming. And... Uh, So I tried a lot of, had an opportunity to get an awful lot of free booze during that time. I had tried to get my wife to drink with me, and uh, she wouldn't do it. And after giving birth to four children, and we were over celebrating the retirement of one of her bosses, my boss drank, my wife drank with me for the first time. And a lot of things happened that night that I didn't realize until I looked back happened. Um, it's the first time I'd ever seen my wife drink more than one drink or even over half a drink. We were to be at that party for some time. I had gotten someone to work for me. And our plan was to be there at that party and then go down to the club where I, I was supposed to be working and, and be with my friends and dance and carry on and then go home because we had a babysitter for probably one of the third or fourth times since we'd been married. And as luck would have it, uh, my wife was the life of the party, and she was uh, young and very attractive and a nice figure, and uh, she got drunk. And I thought it was kind of fun because we were doing it together. And we got in the car and drove down to where I was supposed to be working, and I don't know what happened other than pride jumped out in front of me and stopped me or something, I think. As we started to walk into this club where I was working, I realized that my wife was just absolutely drunk. I remember telling her that we were going home. She said no, she wanted to go in, and I remember just physically picking her up and walking back out to the car and putting her in the front seat, and I drove home. I cannot describe to you the feelings that I had that night. Today I can tell you how I felt. The only reason I did what I did at the time that I did it is because I didn't want my friends to see my wife drunk. And I didn't want to face the embarrassment that I felt that I was going to have to put up with, that I was going to feel if they did see her in this condition. Unbeknownst to me at that particular moment in time, my wife blacked out that night also. This was to be revealed later on, you know, more to be revealed. Uh, as the drinking progressed, uh, I came to our marriage with uh, some real good anger. 
I learned how to do it real well from a little German lady who was an unchecked Al-Anon. And I learned all the right way to be angry. And my mother is the one that dealt out the punishment at my house, but I felt that, so I felt that I dealt it, I dished it out at our house. And uh, as the drinking progressed, I didn't realize that it had progressed into alcoholism almost immediately. I know that immediately we started having problems in our relationship. There were some good things going on during that drinking, though, however. Um, there was a little bit more, we became a little bit more uninhibited in our, in our sex life. And I thought, man, this is great, you know. And uh, there came a time in that relationship, even in that relationship, that it was not any good. I heard a woman speak from the podium one day, and she said, uh, if you married an alcoholic, you've been sexually abused. And I'm here to tell you, it, it works from the other side, too. Because I know that there was a time during my wife's drinking where she was sexually abused by me. And I didn't identify that until I heard her speak and say that. And I heard an Al-Anon say that. And uh, it works the other way, too. We uh, went charging on down the road to happy destiny, and alcoholism was running rampant in our lives. I became an extremely angry person. It seemed like the only emotion that I could express either to my wife or my children was anger. I, uh, <clears throat> today, and by today's standards and by the standards at that time, I became an emotional and uh, physical batterer of my children. I discovered that one of the things that I could do, I got to the point where I couldn't get the, my wife's attention any longer. So what I would do, I would, unknowns, unbeknownst to me, I started jabbing at the kids. And there was four of them, so I'd poke at one and I'd watch her for a reaction. And then I'd poke at another and I'd watch her for the reaction. Pretty soon I found one kid that I could jab and I could get the greatest reaction from her from. And the unfortunate thing was that both of us were poking at this one kid. And it happens so often in, in our families when we have a disease of alcoholism rampant. One of the children gets the greatest amount of abuse, whether it's emotional or physical or, or mental or whatever we do. And... Uh, I just did it because I couldn't get a response any longer from her. So I did what I did. Alcoholism for me provided a back door. It provided an escape. I remember the first time I heard the second step and the first meeting I ever went to in Dallas in an Al-Anon meeting was a step study meeting. And my higher power, when he moved us to El Paso, made sure that I was in a step study meeting for eight and a half years. Because I didn't know how dishonest I had become with myself. I remember the first time they did that second step, and I said I had never done anything insane in my life. And uh, as I stayed in that room, these gals and these guys kept telling me, just keep coming back, keep coming back, and it'll start clearing up for you. And that was a frightening experience when it started clearing up, because I started getting honest with myself, and and realizing to what extent I had damaged 
uh, my family, how much responsibility I had for the destruction of my relationship with between my wife and myself, and the crippled relationship that I held at that time with uh, four children. I was uh, <clears throat> married at age 18, so when alcoholic drinking really got rampant, and I was we were living in Dallas, and I had a, a job that I did an awful lot of entertaining in, and I took that as an excuse to be out of the house all the time. So if I came home and she was either half drunk or drunk or whatever, I had an excuse to leave. And I would shine, shave, shower, and leave home. And the insanity in that was that I was leaving four children in that house with her. Later on, I was to find out that she was loading those four kids in a car and going out looking for me around town. And you know, there's somewhere in the Anon literature that it says you shall not leave your children with someone who is drinking. You should not get in a car with someone who is drinking. And I did that for several years. It allowed me an opportunity to go out there where my friends were, the guys that were drinking. I didn't have to stay in that insane home. I could go out there in public where the insanity was going on and it was accepted. And I participated in it. I uh, remember coming to in, uh, in Peoria, Illinois one day. I was had a new job, and I was a real good job. And there was a moment of clarity that said that uh, there was a woman that back at that house trying to take care of four children, and I was out there on the road. I don't know what brought that moment of clarity, because it happened about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'm sure I had had enough to drink the night before. But uh, I had, at that time, decided that it was time for me to get off the road, and I had just had my first exposure to Al-Anon, probably about a month or two before that. I'd gone to probably about five or six meetings, and my wife had gotten in the program at that time. And I decided it was time for me to get off the road and come home and assume some of my responsibilities you see, when my wife came to me one day and I knew something was going on, you know. First of all, the clothing started changing, you know. This was back in the days of white boots, go-go boots and short skirts. And, and she was wearing these things and leaving the house a lot. And I started getting kind of worried, you know. I never, ever realized that she had quit drinking. She had been going to meetings for several weeks maybe even a couple of months when she came up to me and she told me she was an alcoholic and that she was going to AA and I promptly told her she was crazier than hell and I turned around and left the house. This is the guy who one night before she said, or several months before she had told me that she was, she said possibly the best thing she could do for our family was to die. And I was already shy and shaved to shower and I was leaving and my last gesture as I was leaving the house was to push a couple of razor blades under the door of our bathroom. And I hadn't done anything insane when I came to this program. I uh, remember walking up, you know, John was describing some of those feelings he had as a child, and I remember being the creator of some of that disease in my family. And, and one of the clearest memories I have, I remember coming up in my... My two sons played baseball, 
They were just little guys. And I remember driving up to the house, and I thought, boy, that looks neat out there. Those two boys are out there in little uniforms, and they're throwing a baseball across the lawn. And uh, I walked up, and I threw the ball with them a little bit, and I was grinning, and I was happy, and everything was going well. I obviously had a good day at work that day, and I walked in the house, and my wife was over there trying to prepare dinner with one eye closed, I think. And one of the boys bopped in through the garage, and all he asked was, when do we have to come in to eat? And it hit the fan. And I grabbed both of those guys and drug them in their bedroom and had them clean, you know, GI the bedroom, chewed them out for the dirty house and chew them out for what was going on. And all I had done was seen my wife drunk. You see, I didn't have control over my own emotions. It took this program to make me realize that. You know, one thing I don't—I know today is I don't have control over my emotions. I only have control over how I allow myself to respond when I feel it. For that, I'm responsible today. But that's just little tips of the insanity that was going on in my home. The abuse... Uh, Kids started jumping out the window real early at an early age. Our daughter was probably about 15 or 16. And we went through some of that. Pat got into the program, and I got into the program, and the insanity continued in our home. And I didn't know why. And what it was that I was carrying a lot of excess baggage into that relationship. I was still very angry. I didn't get angry. I just had it all the time. I just constantly had it. It was just kind of steaming underneath the surface all the time. And and my family's the one that paid the price. I always struck out at my family. At work, I was a pretty nice guy. At home, I was was just Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There was only two speeds, you know. And I couldn't figure out why my children didn't like me. They seemed to gravitate toward their mother a lot more than myself. And I was the sane one in the family, I thought. And uh, as I look back, I was the one that was the most irrational. They knew what their mother was going to be, you know. She, she's going to be laying on a couch drunk. She's going to be laying on the floor drunk. She's going to be trying to fix dinner drunk. Or she's going to be in a bedroom drunk. And me, they didn't know if I was going to be exploding and bouncing off the walls or not home or happy or sad or whatever. We uh, were to start progressing as Pat started getting sober I started having some real problems with her sobriety and I couldn't identify them and one day I had the courage I sat down with a sponsor I had done it in Dallas and then I started talking to an old fella in, in uh, El Paso and uh, once in a while I'd allow him to know me a little better and then I was going to kept going to meetings and hearing what people were telling me and then I started discovering what my disease was with my wife getting sober you see I, I had gotten real sick I had assumed an awful lot of responsibilities during during uh, six or seven years of alcoholic drinking and I had become the maker of all decisions the passer of all laws the enforcer of all laws enforcer of all penalties I had become a single parent family and there was two of us in the house 
And I had to start learning again, and very painfully, to allow my wife to take her rightful place in that family. To allow her to say yes or no to the children. Say yes or no to whatever was going on in our lives. And to become another senior partner in that family. As you see, I had stripped her of all that during the time that she was drinking. I uh, started going to Al-Anon. I thought, man, I'm going to get better and I'm going to get better. And then alcoholism popped up in our children. We have, uh, at that time, we have four children. We have two boys and two girls. The oldest girl uh, left as the minute that she could. At age 18, she got out of school and she moved out with a friend of hers. And I was watching my two sons travel down what I considered was the normal road. But it was a very different road than I was traveling as youngsters. I should have had some signals, but I, I was afflicted by the disease of denial. I, as you've heard other people say, could look at some tragedy going on in my own life and never acknowledge that it was going on. I watched uh, two young men trying to ruin their lives starting at probably age 14 or 15, and the other guy was just 18 months older. They were pretty close. I remember the first time the police brought my oldest son home. And I should have had an immediate signal what was going on. I had been out looking for this guy before. But they brought him home and he couldn't hardly stand up. And the whole front of his jeans was wet. And he was in a blackout. And I knew it and I wouldn't acknowledge it. And the cop said, well, you know, it's just teenage kids. You know, if we found him hanging on top of a street sign and his other buddy wrapped around the bottom of the street sign. And uh, we thought we'd better bring him home. I should have known that. At this particular time, I'd already been in Allen on a few years. But denial was an insidious disease, as is the disease of alcoholism when we can watch it in our own families. And I was able to just minimize the gravity of the situation at that time. This son would go on to cause himself a hell of a lot of emotional pain. An awful lot of physical pain. And I would watch it. And I would minimize it. And we would yell. I would yell and scream. And I was, I'd never do the right thing. You see, during a time that these boys were drinking, during a time they were growing up, and during the time that the alcoholic drinking was going on in our home, I never told either one of those boys that I loved them. It was hard to tell them I loved them because it's hard to tell anyone you love them when you don't like what they're doing. Whether you perceive it to be done to you or perceive it, have the courage to acknowledge that they're doing it to themselves. But at that moment in time, I thought they were doing it to me. So I, uh, I had not done that. I had not done that. I don't know how many times during the time my wife's alcoholic drinking was going, I told her I loved her. Because, see, I didn't really like her very well at that time. <clears throat> 
I'm the same guy that used to go to church on Sunday morning with all four of those little kids lined up, my wife over there, and uh, a hangover, and I'd be looking to see who, what suspect would come in that would make a potentially good mother for these four kids because I just knew my wife was going to die. A lot of insanity kept going on in our home, and I didn't know what it was, and I was the main stir of the pot. The inability to accept the reality of what was going on around me was killing me, and I didn't even know it. I was going down and on, and I was learning what... I thought I was learning what was going on, and I thought I learned what was happening, and I I could see it in other people, but I couldn't see it in my own family. One night, in a moment of insanity, I remember I, uh, I own this hand now they call a... It's got a fracture called a boxer's fracture. And this uh, second son of ours, the youngest son of ours, was in real deep trouble. He would I'd caught him one time dealing drugs, and he was... We could smell him coming in the house, you know, and you didn't have to be real bright to know that it was pot, and they were drunk. And, and, and we had little signals, like we would go to bed at night with our door locked. Okay. There's something wrong with this picture. My billfold would be between the inner spring mattress and the mattress on my bed. My wife's purse was under her pillow. But we were both involved in the program. You know, I learned the language of the brain and the mouth, but somehow or another it wasn't doing that trickle down I couldn't get it to get down in here I just couldn't get it down where I lived and where I hurt when I have a tremendous amount of emotional pain I know today that it doesn't hurt up here it's right in my chest where it hurts and I was about to learn a lesson and open a wound down there that took a long time to heal I had never been talked back to by my by either of my sons, and one of them was six foot tall, and he looked like my wife's side of the family. He's blonde-headed and blue-eyed kid. And uh, real quick, and his other brother is Mark is probably five seven at the most, and weighs today 135 or 40 pounds. I remember one night we were having an argument with my son, and he kept he got real mouthy with me, and I told him how to just slap his little face, and he said, "Well, why don't you just do it?" And he stood up. And I took my best shot, and I hit the corner of the doorpost, you know, the frame around the door, and broke my hand. And I looked at this kid in all sincerity and seriousness, and I told him, look what you made me do. (laughs) I'm dancing around with a broken hand, telling this kid what he made me do. You see, at that moment in time, I was in absolute blind rage. I remember pushing him over a coffee table and I kicked him in the kidneys. I was to learn later on after I got a couple of days later that my wife had taken him to the doctor that following day and he had passed blood in his urine. You see, that's what my dad used to do to me. He used to kick me. My mother used a belt. My mother was the stronger of the two. I was raised in a maternal household. My mother called all the shots. My father was a drunk. 
if I ever wanted to go anywhere, I'd talk to my mom. And I remember my oldest son would not talk to me for about a month after that, when his brother passed that year, and even though he knew he was in the wrong. I didn't find out until later on what I felt that day. During all this time, had you asked me what was going on in my mind, I'd have told you that I was angry. That's the only emotion I could describe. I had a tremendous amount of anger. Not only for for me, but for the people around me. I... Uh, a couple of years later, we're, we're, these boys were partying on a river. We lived in El Paso. And, you know, that's one of the major drug trails in the United States. We would get calls in the middle of the night from I know grown men looking for this son of mine. One night I finally told the guy, if you call my home again, I'm going to have the police put a tap on this phone and I'll talk to you till next week. And they never call back again. This son came home one day early in the morning at daybreak with no shoes on and his t-shirt covered with blood. And a total blackout. I mean absolutely out of control. And we hugged and he cried and I told him what he told me the same thing I'd always told him. It didn't really happen. You see, I was raised in one of those households where you express these feelings and you express these things that happen and you said you really don't feel that way. When your children say, I hate them, I wish they'd die, and you tell them, oh, no, no, you don't feel that way. We negate their feelings. See, I came from that house that allowed me to say that. And that was the right thing to say. You really don't feel that way. It really didn't happen. You see, I wasn't even willing to accept the reality of what was going on in my own son's life. He had been in wars the night before and he swore that someone got shot over there that day. I had a friend on the police department who was a lieutenant who happened to be a drunk who never got sober, who died at an early age of 42 or 3. And I called him at the police station. I asked him to check and see if anyone had been killed in Juarez. An American, a young boy, who happened to have been with my son. And he said no. And I asked my son where he'd been, and he wouldn't tell me. And... A few days later, these guys were out there talking in front of my garage, which was a hangout for the neighborhood, and and one of the guys said, what happened in the shooting gallery that night? And I knew where my son had been. But you see, I never said anything to my son about it. Unbeknownst to me, at the time that these two boys were drinking and carrying on, there was a, the, sh- the tail gunner was coming up. It was our youngest daughter. She was at that time probably about 15. David would have been 16 or 17. And there was one period of the year, if David were alive today, the boys, the children would be 31, 32, and 33. 
So all during life they'd be 8, 9, 10, or 11, 12, 13, or 17, 18, 19. David's alcoholism, drug addiction progressed, and my anger at him progressed. I, uh, we sent him off to school. There should have been an indication at that time that David's problem had progressed as, bad, as far as it had. He took my wife's car. I was out of town, and she gave him $100, and he was going to go down and shopping, and he didn't come back till the next day. And he had a long story about why he didn't come back till the next day. And, of course, my immediate reaction was to get angry, and I pitched him on a Greyhound bus and sent him to college. What my son David had done with that 100 bucks, he'd gone down and bought a lot of pot and taken it to Oklahoma with him. And he was going to make a fortune. My son came back from school, and uh, the illness progressed in, in all of us. I think, I, I know Pat was getting well, but I sure wasn't. And I was going to Allen on every week. You know, there's been a period in my life, and there is one today, where I go to, today I go to at least four meetings a week, three or four meetings a week. But at that moment in time, my son came back, and this illness had progressed, and I did not want to acknowledge to what extent it had progressed. November of 1979, my wife and I went up to greet some friends of ours who were at a retreat about 30 miles away from our home, and we left, and it was, I believe it was about 6 o'clock in the morning, 6.15, and uh, we noticed the light was on in David's room. I said, well, I heard him come in last night. He must be all right. Fell asleep with the light on. And we went up and saw our friends, and we were at a great time. These folks were at a retreat. And uh, it's something that we'd participated in that was extremely meaningful to both of us. And we came home. And uh, Pat came and called me and she says, I want you to look at something. And walked over and she had opened David's door. And she said, don't you think that's a little dramatic? He was laying on the floor with a twenty-two between his legs. And I walked over to my son, and my son had committed suicide. My son was 20 years old. The day before that happened, I had tried to talk to David. He was sitting on the floor of his room, and I I walked in, and I asked him if he'd had any success finding a job, and he said no. And I asked, which was a question of the day, you know. For some reason or another, I hadn't asked it the way I had asked it before. And I had asked him if he needed any money, and he said, No, Dad, I don't need your money. And we kind of yelled at each other, and he said, Why do you keep bugging me? And I said, David, I want to help if you'll let me. And we got up. He got up, and for the first time and I can't tell you how many years, I put my arms around my son. I said, David, the reason I'm doing this is because I love you. And I don't know where the words came from. I know today where they came from. You all had told me that I should say these words. You all had taught me how. You've been doing it to me for years. 
I'd been doing it for you, but I couldn't do it for my own children. And he would come home that night, and my he was out with my son, my oldest son. And when the when I found David, I walked around the room, and I and I'll, the only thing that came to mind is that I kept saying over and over, "What can I do?" And I didn't know what to do. I closed the door, Pat and I saw, and, and I walked around the entire house asking myself, "What could I do?" You see, I still wasn't thinking what had happened to my son. I was thinking about what the hell I could do. There must be something I can do to fix what has happened. I, I can't honestly tell you what I was thinking. I uh, first call I made was to some friends of ours in AA. Pat and uh, and Gene have sponsored each other for about 18 years, I think. I called her and her husband. Her husband's in Al-Anon. And I told them what had happened, and they said they'd be right over. And then I called the police. And then I woke the children up, and I told them what had happened. And my son immediately blamed himself. And I said, why are you blaming yourself? And he said, he was with me last night. I said, but he came home before you did. He said, I told him not to drink. And I could tell he wasn't in a good place. We uh, had one of those miracles that happens in this program, happened during that time. You folks in the program and these people that we'd gone to visit surrounded us. And uh, loved us only the way you all know how and, and those people knew how. And you told me it was going to be all right. And I believed you, but it hurt. We had uh, chosen not to have a funeral per se. We chose cremation for my son. We chose not to have anything at a funeral home. And we literally opened our home to AA friends and that's the other group of nuts that we met in the Episcopal Church. And our house was full for days with, with people. One of the people that came is a friend of mine today and he was a friend of mine then. This guy, when I met him, told me he was an agnostic and I knew it. I'd been in meetings with him for a couple of three years. I'd never seen him say the Lord's Prayer. And he had one of those jobs that takes him away at all hours of day or night, you know. He delivers babies for a living. And he came to our house. And he was at our house every moment he could be at our house. And his wife would call and she says, he's still there? And I said, yeah, he's still here. She said, send him home if he's in the way. I said, he's not in the way. And he stayed. And I remember one day I walked up to him and I said, uh, and we were in the kitchen together. And he said, Clyde, there's something going on in your house and I don't know what it is. 
something happening in that A week later, we were having an internment for my son's ashes in a town up the road from us. And we had invited this fellow who was my sponsor and his wife. They were coming, real special people to us. Even today, she is. He has since died. He died with 30-some years of sobriety. And they came, and our children were there. And... Uh, this friend of mine drove up in his car wearing the mysterious corduroy suit. You see, I'd known this guy for a couple of years, and all I ever saw him wear was a denim shirt and blue jeans. I was to find out later on that the re- reason he wore those denim shirts and blue jeans all the time is they were his lucky shirts, and he only had two. The guy's a physician. But you see, those shirts kept him sober. But he said he had one suit, and I saw him wearing it that morning. And I asked him what he was doing there, and he says, I don't know, but I'm going with you. And he said, I'm scared, but I'm going with you. We went up into this Episcopal church in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and we had a very nice, very short service, at the close of which we all held hands and said the Lord's Prayer. And my friend said the Lord's Prayer. And my friend was in that church. And my friend reads the lessons in the church that his family goes to today. You see what was going on in my house that day, and I knew what was going on in my house that day when he told me that. It was God working through people, and you all had told me that that's what he did. I was having a first-hand experience and didn't even know it. God, of my understanding today, works through people. Subtly, sometimes He talks to me through people. Sometimes somebody's yelling at me. But you see, that's just one of the miracles of this program. I would, at this moment during this period of this loss become closer and get closer to my wife than I ever had been. I had never ever been able to express to her how a real, real gut feeling that I had. And I don't know why I was afraid. Maybe I was afraid like my family she would negate the fact that I had it. I remember laying in bed that one of that night after the service telling her that I had a tremendous hole in my heart I didn't I just I didn't know what to do for it I'd get up and walk up and down the hall a friend of ours gave us some kind of geriatric sleeping pills and Pat took one and dozed off finally and I think if she could stand me getting up and down, and I couldn't stand the loss of control. I only took a half. I spent half the night walking up and down the hall. But for the first time in my life, I was able to ex- to tell my wife a real, honest-to-God feeling I had and how I felt and how it hurt and how I wish it would go away. I 
we left Christmas Eve. We went to, uh, Pat and I went up to the mountains with these friends of ours. They have a old homestead in a ghost town. We got a phone call on New Year's Day. They finally found us. You see, my oldest son was in jail in Las Cruces, New Mexico. And they thought he was trying to attempt suicide. My son's alcoholism had just kind of progressed along with the other guys, except that the little, the big blonde guy was getting more attention because he was causing more problems. He was more gregarious. This other guy's real quiet, you know. And we couldn't go see him because they wouldn't let us see him during the holidays anyway, so we stayed up there and went down the following day and I talked to him in jail. And I asked him what brought it all on, and he said, Dad, he said, I know I'm responsible for David's death. And you know, in this program, they had told me that it's okay to seek professional help. And I knew my son needed it. And I suggested it. And I told him, if you'll go, I'll pick up the tab. And my son went, and I think it saved his life. He didn't quit drinking. But I think he quit blaming himself for his brother's death. Several years later, about five years ago, I was to have... I had a lot of those little miracles happen in my life along the way, those unrecognizable ones that you hear about all the time. You know, the fact that you didn't think about someone's problems or life situations that you thought maybe you should control, you know. You know, they say that for for every problem, there's a solution. It's simple, neat. And most of the time it's wrong. Especially if you're trying to solve somebody else's problems. I uh, was working the program to the best of my ability at that time. Five years ago on Christmas Eve night, my wife and I were coming home from midnight service. And I heard the sirens up on the freeway. And we lived down in the valley probably about eight miles from where I heard the siren. But it was quiet and it was Christmas Eve night and it was just brisk and you could hear forever. And I got a knot in my gut. Because you see, I'd been getting knots in my guts for a long time with those kids out there. And any one of you who's ever stood at a peephole in a window, which I did for a long time trying to see if my kids were coming home or driving up down the road seeing if you could see them. That knot came back in my gut that night, and I hadn't had it in a long time. And I didn't know why. And we got home, and about 15 minutes to 1, the phone rang. Now it was later than that. It was probably closer to 3 o'clock in the morning. Because we get, now it was about it was about 1.30, maybe, something like that. And it was my daughter-in-law, and she said, please come to the house immediately. And I said, Okay. I said, what happened? She said, I think Mark thinks he killed someone tonight. Mark is my oldest son. 
we had already undressed for bed and we dressed and we went up to his home. And when I got there, my son was completely out of control. You see, my son had an alcohol and drug problem. And I looked at his car when I walked up and I could see the dented hood. And I could see where somebody hit the windshield. And I talked to my son and I asked him what happened. And I cried with him. And I put my arms around him and I told him that I loved him. And I remember that night putting my arms just flat on top of his legs. And we were head to head and I said the Lord's Prayer. And I asked him to take care of my son. I called a lawyer friend of ours. He came down. He's in the program. And we took my son to jail. For some unknown reason, my son was not either drunk that night or under the influence of drugs that night. He was out trying to find some heroin and couldn't find any. And he was on his way home. At 15 minutes to, there was about 15 minutes to 1 when he hit the young man riding a bicycle and the police don't know why in the middle of the road with dark clothes at 1 o'clock in the morning. We would set up an intervention on this young man very quickly. And the lawyer that I told you about, a friend of ours, was a mediator, facilitator, my wife and I, my daughter-in-law. We did all the work that you do prior to doing an intervention. And we showed up at my son's house at 7 o'clock one Sunday morning in January. And my daughter-in-law came downstairs and she said, your parents are here and my son knew why we were there. He said, I know why you're here and you can't convince me to go. You see, my son had read the book on intervention because we were going to do one on his little sister. And we'd give him the book, get ready, we're going to Austin, we're going to do an intervention on your little sister. We did the intervention, and we told him what we were supposed to tell him. How we felt when he drank and how it affected us. And my son went to treatment that afternoon. During treatment, I was to make one of those great discoveries that you don't make. You don't make them when you're not ready. I think maybe I was ready to make a discovery. Maybe it was time to find out more about me. In one of those knee-to-knee conversations with this young man where he was telling me how he felt when I did certain things, he described the time that I took a poke at his brother. He told me how he felt when his brother yelled when I was at the hospital when he was passing blood in his urine. He told me how much he hated me that night. And he asked me, Dad, how did you feel? And out of somewhere in the back of my mind, out of the back of my head, I never even thought. I told him, Mark, I was scared to death. 
And he said, of what? And I said, I was afraid I was going to lose your brother. You see, I didn't know that. And when that unlocked, that unlocked a lot of other stuff. An awful lot of my anger has been fear. Tremendous amount of fear that I was going to lose the people that I cared the most about, even though I never told them. My son today has been in the program about five years. My son does not go to meetings today. I love that kid, and he knows it. He told me a while back that he needed to get back, but you see his wife has little or no understanding of the program. And uh, I just got to hang back and support him however I can and support her however I can. We have another daughter who's been in and out of jail more than I can say. The last two years, she's probably spent more time in than out. The little lost child started out being a real plain alcohol, just beer drinker. And My daughter's a heroin addict. My daughter's a thief and a felon. And I love her. And I tell her that when I have an opportunity. And I get angry at her. And I've hung up on her in the last three months and told her in no uncertain terms that I didn't put her where she was. Because she, she starts making demands on me as a child would of a parent. Do something for me. I need this and I need that and I need this and I need that. And I can't save her. My daughter's been clean and sober five months, and uh, part of it was in jail. She just came off of methadone within the last 30 to 45 days, and I hope she makes it. My oldest daughter is uh, is a product of a real dysfunctional family. She's she's plagued with the disease of denial as strongly as her father was. And... uh, we just pray for her a lot and love her a lot and hope one day she'll have the courage to go to Al-Anon. Today I go to Al-Anon a lot. I was telling John, I belong to a men's stag meeting. We started a few years ago. A buddy of mine and I started. We met by ourselves for a long time. And today we have anywhere from a lowest 12 guys and a highest 25 to 28. About 85 to 95% of our members are, are members of AA. Uh, for several years, Pat and I have gone together to open AA meetings. I, really, I started going to open AA meetings 21 years ago. But today we go to a couples meeting. Where in, uh, that We learned this in Georgia several years ago, 10, 12 years ago. They said there's a neat couples meeting down here at this club, and you guys ought to come, and we drive through the snow going over there. And I used to call it legalized bloodletting, you know, because you got to take some real cheap shots at your partner and knew that there was a lot of referees in the room, you know. Oh, I've done that. So that, that made it a little less tragic, see. And, and uh, some of it was, well, as, as is in our program, but a lot of it got very personal and uh, some of it got 
pretty bloody too. <laughs> but uh, we try to go to that as often as we can. They have them there. Our group is called Growing Together, and uh, and we go and uh, and share with other people our experience, strength, and hope. Talk a tremendous amount about communication and the lack of it and the need for it. And how do you get it and how do you fix it and how do you talk without screaming and. And we had a friend in Georgia, he used to say he and his wife stood toe-to-toe and blew each other's hair back, you know. And, <laughs> and they both had great big voices, you know, and they are Italians from Chicago, and they were just... But they had real neat programs, you know. But, but he said just once in a while, it's just necessary for us to stand toe-to-toe and yell at each other. And, he, and I could just visualize his hair blowing back, because he was that kind of guy. Today I've got to I've got to learn a lot of stuff. I've learned a lot from you all. I've learned how to care. I've learned how to care about me. I've learned how to be honest with me. And I, I couldn't be honest with me when I first came. I I'm a salesman today by vocation. I guess I've done most of my life. And uh, I sell me that I'm okay when I'm not. And I have to go to meetings and people. Tell me that I'm not okay. You know, in World War II, one of the little stories that I remember all the time when I try to remember acceptance and acceptance of a higher power that this program keeps telling us. You know, in World War II, they had all these little orphan children. And the Red Cross would try to put them to bed at night and they all they did was cry all night. And a doctor there, in all of his wisdom, he said, I know what you can do. And when they put the children down tonight, he says, give them all a piece of bread. And just let them take it to bed with them and hold it in their hand. All those little children took that piece of bread with them to bed that night. None of them ate it. They just held it. It gave them that security that tomorrow they'd have something to eat. It gave them the ability to accept the fact that they were going to be all right tomorrow. And and that's what my higher power and the 12 steps do to me today. I have something to hold on to when I go to bed at night or when I'm by myself and I'm feeling really, really lost. It's real easy for me to forget everything that you've given me to hold on to. I can get so centered on myself that I can't remember you've given me all the tools. You've given me phenomenal slices of your life to hold on to when I think that I'm about ready to die. I just always have to remember that. There's a woman who was getting on a bus one day and and describes me perfectly. And she had this giant suitcase, you know, one of those big three-suiter Samsonites like I used to drag around. And it was obviously full of rocks or books or something, but she just, the bus was coming and it was pulling away, and here she comes running down with the, with the suitcase. And, and she came in and she sat down and she tried to put it on her lap. And someone told her that she could put it down that the bus would carry it now. And I think sometimes that I carry those problems around 
Sometimes I carry imaginary ones, unrealistic ones, you know, fears of impending doom. I carry with me. I haven't got the courage in some meetings to tell you what it is I'm carrying. And I sit there and hold it like she did that suitcase. And all I know I've got to do is, if I just set it down or hand it to you, you'll carry it for me. One of the great lessons this program has taught me that is, if you share your joy, your joy increases. And if you share your grief, your grief decreases. And a little thing that that I'll leave you with is, I remember when I first got the courage to go in my son's room after he died. And I, I had my answering machine in there and I left it in there on purpose because it would make me go into David's room. And every time I went in there and answered him, listened to my messages, I cried. And I remembered going in there one day and asking David to leave. I asked him to leave the house. And the first thing that came to my mind was something that a friend of ours said he'd seen at a at a uh, detox center in Detroit, downtown Detroit, in the ghetto down there. Someone had written in shoe polish. It said, thank you, God, for all you've given me. Thank you, God, for all you've taken from me. Thank you, God, for all you've left me. And as I sat on my son's bed, I remembered everything that I had left. I still had a wife. I still had three children. I still had my health. And most importantly, I still had Al-Anon and my friends in AA. Thank you all very much.